is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of May 22nd through 26th. 2023. And we had some Jeopardy episodes this week, five of them, you know, plus the masters, but we're not talking about masters here. We're we're talking about the five. Before we talk about the five, though, hey, here we are two humans. Going through some transitions. <laughs> we are two humans. <laughs> two human, two real, genuine humans. Yeah, both of us, <laughs> both of us had members of our household quit their jobs. This leave their jobs this week. So, Kyle, how's quitting your job going? Great. So that was far. maybe a leading question. If you want to talk about something I mean, else, you can talk about I something mean, else. I mean, no. It, it, my last day was hectic and full of a lot because all of a sudden, people in positions of authority realized that. When they're bringing in a new person, this new person doesn't know the things that I know. Mm. And I, they keep, yeah, it was a lot of like, Hey, can you, can you like throw this together? Can you inventory all of these? So I did have to like inventory every single instrument in my school, Fun. Uh, which, which I will realistically should have been done, something that was done before. I will say I never got one when I arrived. So it's not like I let it slip. But I probably should have done it. But yeah, so that was a good four hours of my last day. But it it was fine. And now, I mean, at this point, it's just I'm on summer vacation. And yeah, you know, it it, it doesn't really hasn't really hit me. Mm -hmm. Also, because I don't have another job lined up. So, you know, (laughs) listeners, if you're hiring junior developers or anything like that, you know, reach out to me. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to. You know, not to use this podcast entirely for my own gain, but no, do it, do it. I guess that's, that's, I mean, that's we have a Patreon. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but that's it. So I'm on summer break now. Kids are on summer break, getting into that summer thing. Mm-hmm. How about you? How are how are you doing with your uh, well, institutions? I, I have not quit my job, but my, my spouse quit his job, so he had his last day two days ago. And I don't know, big changes, big yeah. changes. Yeah, but it hasn't hit either because, you know, we're in we're in the weekend now, mm. but it's, it's going to get really weird as he just keeps not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> Saturday is a normal day for him to not go to work, but we're, we're heading we're heading toward the weird time. But it's that's very exciting. He is taking some time not working. He's got like he's a very organized person. So he has like lists and spreadsheets and goals and stuff about like what he wants to do while he's not working. Yeah. I'm, I'm impressed and intimidated as always, as I always am by highly organized people, but Hey, Hey, good for him. So yeah, that's, that's me. We've got a five, we're on a five day weekend right now from school because they had to add days to Memorial day weekend. So we went to Legoland the other day. That was fun. Nice. Yeah. And uh, Hyrule is excellent. Oh my God. Tears of the Kingdom is so good. <laughs> I know you need to focus on finding a job, but like. Oh, uh, this is like the worst time for me to do that. It's, it's so like, good. 
You can't you can't tempt me like this, Emily. No, all right. Okay. Don't, don't it's horrible. It's horrible. Don't don't play it. Don't think about don't, yeah, no. No, it's great. It's I I'm I'm very deep into Tears of the Kingdom. I'm really, really enjoying it. There are it's a huge game. It is an unbelievably rich world, which I'm really enjoying. Okay. Yeah. But hey, Jeopardy. Yeah, that's the game we're here for. Yeah, we're here. We're here for that unbelievably rich game. That's right. With, with one increasingly rich contestant. So Monday, May 22nd, our contestants are Nancy Duran, a marketing copywriter from Stowe, Vermont. Joe Lasser, an astronautical engineer originally from Colfax, Illinois. And Ben Chan, a philosophy professor from Green Bay, Wisconsin, whose eight-day cash winnings total $227,800. And the Jeopardy round categories are art imitating life, Americana, assisting the detective, book puri, if there was a problem, and yo, I'll solve it. Yo in quotation marks. Check out the hook of my DJ revolves it. That's that's that's, from, that's from Ice Ice Baby. I don't, okay. I don't know if any of you don't know if anybody else caught that. I did not, and I thought to myself, shouldn't it be if there were a problem? No, if there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. I'm just saying, a subjunctive mean, mood. Were you a 90s kid if you never memorized the lyrics to Ice Ice Baby? I, and Baby Got Back. I think I was a 90s kid, but I did not memorize the lyrics to Ice Ice Baby. I don't know that I believe you then. Okay. Just saying. One of my one of my prouder trivia moments was oh, okay. a, a Name That <laughs> Tune round where... I, I'm normally terrible in name that tune. It was like a geeks who drink. Oh. They always have it. Do you know geeks? Like, yeah. do, you, do you have a geeks who drink? They are so hard. They're so hard. They always do a pop music category, and, and it's listening, always and it's disaster. always so hard. And it's worth I, twice as many points as the other rounds because you get one point for the artist, artist and one and, and one point for the title. It's I hate it, it. I hate those. It's rounds. always it's round two, right? And I come out right. around one doing great. And then round two is a catastrophe. And then I spend the whole remaining game fighting my way back up into a respectable position. Anyway, it was it was a geeks who drink name that tune round of songs about butts. And and a clip came on and everyone in my team is like, Sir Mix a lot. And I'm like, I the person who never contributes in this round, I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's Nicki Minaj because she sampled Sir Mix a lot in Anaconda. And everyone's like, nah. And then Nicki Minaj comes in and I was right. And we got the two points because of me. So that was that's that's my bragging Extremely for today. Satisfying. Very it nice. was so satisfying. Very good. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of you. Yeah, thank you. But hey, John Green <laughs> presented the $400 level of book for me. So you have something to talk about. It was a triple stumper. I was so bummed. He, I co-created Crash Course, he said, which offers dozens of free educational videos on YouTube. And in one video titled Don't Reanimate Corpses, I talk about the romantic movement in English Lit and this novel in particular. And nobody got it. It is Frankenstein. Mm. Yeah. Don't reanimate corpses plus romanticism or English yeah. literature. Like it should get you there. I wonder why nobody there's even a, attempted it. Yeah. There's a lot going on there, I guess maybe. Yeah. It's a lot of words and it's a video. Video clues are always harder to parse. Yeah. In my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They don't always give you the full text of the clue on the square, right? Sometimes there's like an ellipse. 
ellipsis ellipsis is that what you call the dot 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 in the middle so that you know like what the end of the clue is going to be and can be poised to ring in but like if you're missing if they have to cut it you can be missing some keywords in the middle there yeah maybe they were missing don't reanimate corpses and they had to get it by listening maybe yeah the thousand dollar clue of assisting the detective always it comes to mind a lot and nobody like knows the reference because it's old so the clue is both inspector clouseau and the green hornet are helped by men called this although they spell their names differently nancy got it that's cato and in i think it's a shot in the dark the clouseau movie i don't know why the just the line of cato you fool mm. i could have killed you with a karate chop is it's like it is stuck in my head forever and ever and I have said that to many students and they just don't <laughs> seem to understand, which I get because they probably haven't seen movies from the 70s, yeah. 60s, whatever it was from. I have not seen that particular one either. It's a good one. Okay. Sean, it's very All good. right. Although, you know what? It might not be good. It's been a while since I watched it. I was like, a, I was a teenager. I thought it was funny. Maybe, maybe mm. it's not. Yeah. Daily Double number one is over in Art Imitating Life at the $600 level. It is pick number nine. Ben finds it. He's up to 2,800. Joe is at negative 1,000. Nancy is at negative 800. And he bets everything and gets the clue. Jan Willem Pienemann's painting of this 1815 event was to go to the Duke of Wellington, but stayed in Holland. And he got it correct with what's the Battle of Waterloo. Mm-hmm. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Ben is up to 8,400, Joe is at 1,400, and Nancy is still in the red at negative 400. The double Jeopardy categories are historic people, a loss for words, walking in a redwood forest, pop culture 2003, vacation spots, and rice pudding. How'd you do in that pop culture category? That's like your sweet spot. Uh, You know, it is my sweet spot, but there were a bunch of things here I just didn't know, so... Mm. I, I couldn't remember who like the who the actresses were in Dawson's Creek. I was trying to bring oh. Katie Holmes's name to mind, but that was wrong mm. anyway. It was Michelle Williams that they were looking mm. for, uh, who played Jen. I do real time with Bill Bill Maher. Yeah, yeah. No, these were these were not great for me. Not great for the contestants either. The only one that was correctly answered in here was the Daily Double, which we'll get to later. Yeah. Yeah. How was how, what did you did you know some of them? I knew Real Time with Bill Maher and I knew the $2000 clue. The the this hero of books by Patrick O'Brien came to cinemas in the person of Russell Crowe. That's Jack Aubrey from the Master and Commander series. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was a That was a good movie and my dad loves the Patrick O'Brien books cuz it's all about old sh- sailing ships. Yeah. And Napoleonic warfare, and he just he just mm, he just eats that eats that up. So he has read every one of them, and there are a lot of them, and he's read them multiple times. So uh, mm-hmm. I I know Jack Aubrey. Yeah, rice pudding. I think did you say it was all it was all rice related questions? The pudding was just in the category title to I don't know round it out. <laughs> there was Condoleezza Rice. There was Rice University. There was sushi yeah. rice. No pudding, though. Yeah, no pudding. Alas. Daily Double number two is in that pop culture 2003 category we were just talking about, the $1,200 level. Pick number two, and Joe finds this one. He's at 2200 to Ben's 8400 Nancy is at negative 400 
he makes it a true daily double, which I think is a great move in this situation. And he gets the clue in this film, the Emperor of Japan wants Algren, Tom Cruise, to modernize his army, but Algren deeply respects the old ways. And he gets that one correct. It's The Last Samurai. Yep. And Daily Double number three is in Walking in a Redwood Forest at the $2,000 level. Pick number 19, and Ben finds this one. He is at 16400 Joe's at 8000 Nancy's at 3600 He wagers only 2000 Gets a clue. A national monument in Marin County, known for old-growth redwoods, is named after this conservationist. And he gets it correct with who is Muir. Mm-hmm. Muir. 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 I can never, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can never really make the sound of his last name correct. Yeah. <laughs> So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Ben is once again in a lock position with 20,800. Joe's at 7,600. Nancy's at 3,600. And the final Jeopardy category is children's books. The clue is the original 1900 printing of this book was in a pale green dust jacket stamped in a vivid jewel tone of green. Nancy responded, what is Anne of Green Gables? Which I thought was a great guess. Yeah. Right? You've got to figure out why they're highlighting green. Mm-hmm. And nineteen, I can't remember when Anne of Green Gables was published. The pop, remember. the popularity of Ben Hur is a plot point in Anne of Green Gables, so mm-hmm. somewhere around then. <laughs> but but Anne of Green Gables is not correct. I did manage to get a Ben Hur tie in here, though. Yeah, so, amazing. yeah, yeah. It's it's one of my skills. It's been um, too long. Yeah. Nancy's wager 3,500. So that drops her down to 100. Joe gets it correct, though, with what is the Wizard of Oz? They were trying to get you to think of the Emerald City. Uh, He's wagered 399, trying to stay above Nancy should she go all in and get it right. So he goes up to 7,999. And Ben got it correct as well with what is the Wizard of Oz and a $4,000 wager, which gives him 24,800 for the game and his ninth win. So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Lynn DeVito, a retired museum educator from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Danny Lesserman, a policy communications manager from Rancho Palos Verdes, California. And Ben Chan, a philosophy professor from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Nine-day cash winnings total $252,600. And the Jeopardy round categories are aviation, Super Bowl winners by quarterback, animals in literature, historical hodgepodge, G-rated words with G in quotation marks, and you're so shellfish. Mm-hmm. How'd you do with the Super Bowl quarterbacks? Oh, terrible. Oh. I, knew, I knew Tom Brady. I can't remember which Banning is which. Oh, I mean, it's it's different here because we had Peyton, so. Well, I mean. You, oh, you're you in New York. What am I saying? You- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I have no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't keep them straight. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Not that I'm putting a whole lot of time into trying. Know, yeah. Try, trying to, you know, learn NFL stuff. I probably should, but I should do more of that if I want to be good at trivia. Yeah. Sadly, how, yeah. How did you do with the Super Bowl winners by quarterback? Oh, I did. I did quite well. I forgot who Bob Greasy played for. Mm. Uh, the thousand dollar level that's the the dolphins yeah that was significantly before our time but his son brian greasy was a quarterback for the broncos after john elway and so i was like is that the broncos did he play for the Broncos? no he didn't i just got stuck on the broncos 
Mm-hmm. But no, it was it was dolphins. But yes, I I knew the other ones. Nice. The thousand dollar level of historical hodgepodge harkens back to my English royal house. Deep dive. Mm. This king whom Robin Hood took on in stories was known as Lackland because he lacked land. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be able to convince me that he wasn't a lion with a snake advisor. Mm-hmm. He absolutely was. 100%. Yeah, I, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't that is the only context I will like that's that's always going to be mm-hmm. my primary reference for King oh, John. Yeah. yeah. Always. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Followed closely for me by Robin Hood Men and Tights. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, yes. Classic. I, I got a Lego minifigure of Robin Hood, like Disney Robin Hood's Prince John today. <laughs> yesterday. Today. Oh, <laughs> yeah, wow. At Lego. Yeah, they, there's like there are these like like Disney like minifigure blind bags that Lego released where you like, you know, like you get the bag and then you see which character you got. I was like, that'll be a fun souvenir. We'll see who I got. I got, I got Prince John. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. We had sushi yesterday and today in Jeopardy rounds, right? There was a question on Monday about sushi rice. And then on Tuesday in the you're so shellfish category sushi lovers know the main protein in spider rolls is this ben got it it is soft shell crab daily double number one is in historical hodgepodge at the 600 level and ben finds it it's pick number nine he's at 4200 he makes it a true daily double which we support and oh danny's at negative 200 lynn's at 400 ben makes it a true daily double which we support, and he gets the clue. Though Geneva is pretty low as Swiss cities go, a Cold War meeting there was the first one called this top-level type. He tries what is convention, but they're looking for a summit, so he drops to zero and has to start building again. Yeah. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, he hasn't, start. in fact, started building again. He's at 7,200 with Danny at 1,600 and Lynn at 1,000. And the Double Jeopardy categories are A Century of Time magazine covers, TV sitcoms by family, A Country by Any Other Name, Medicine, The Judgment of Paris, and ends with a silent consonant. We had some things related to deep dives, which, I mean, 160-whatever episodes in, (laughs) it would be surprising not to. But hey, we've Mm -hmm. got Joan of Arc at the $400 level of The Judgment of Paris. Mm -hmm. We've got the MMR vaccine at the $400 level of Medicine. Is there another one or two or three in here? I can't remember. Probably. Probably. I mean, we have Dave Brubeck at the... Oh, right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Didn't really talk a lot about Dave Brubeck, but talked about jazz. Talked about jazz more than once. Mm -hmm. Students ask me a lot who my favorite, like, musician is or my favorite artist. Mm. And I'm always like, it's hard to have a favorite. Because, like, I don't don't have... You know, as as a teenager, often you get fixated on like one or a few, right? You have like, mm-hmm. you have the thing that you like and you kind of like, in a way, you build some identity around liking that thing, right? That's yeah. what teenagers do. You're searching for identity. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, genuinely, guys, I don't really have a favorite. And they're like, well, if you had to pick one, just one, who's like, come on, man. I'm like, all right, Dave Brubeck Quartet. They're like, what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it, this isn't a conversation that's going to be fulfilling to you, my dude. <laughs> but if it gets them to listen to Dave Brubeck, then it is successful. Daily Double number two is in medicine. 
at the $1,200 level. It's pick number six. Lynn uncovers it. She is at 7,000. Ben is at 7,200. And, and Danny is at 1,600. Lynn has had a really good start to this round. In fact, she's the only one to get anything right since the round started. So she wagers 3,000. And gets the clue blood pressure that's higher in the doctor's office than at home is referred to as this colorful type of hypertension. And she gets that right with what is a white coat hypertension. I'd I've never, never heard, heard of the term. It, yeah. make, it makes perfect sense. I, um, I, I don't know. I have really good blood pressure all the time. So do you? I get compliments from the nurses about how good my blood pressure is. Congratulations. Not to brag, but my blood pressure is really great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good. Daily double number three is in a country by any other name at the $1,600 level. And Ben finds this one. He's at 11,200 with Danny at 400 and Lynn at 11,600. Ben wagers 3,000 and he gets the clue. In 2022, it changed its official name, adding two dots over the U and changing the final EY to IYE. Ben can't come up with anything. He runs out of time. They're looking for turkey. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's tricky. So he, in this game, loses 7,200 on daily doubles. Yeah. And still goes into double jeopardy with the lead. He's at Mm -hmm. 17,400. Lynn is pretty close at 14,800 and Danny is at 2,400. The final jeopardy category is Shakespeare's characters. And the clue is both of the names of these two lovers in a Shakespeare play come from Latin words for blessed. Danny wrote, who, Romeo and Juliet? That's incorrect. And he loses 1,400. Mm-hmm. Lynn wrote, who are Romeo and Julie, which is also incorrect, and lost 3,000. Ben knew who they were, wrote, who are Beatrice and Benedict? Mm-hmm. And that is incorrect because it in... Is- it is Benedict. Yeah. C-K, not Benedict CT. Yeah. This was the kind of, ju- like this, this kind of judgment is controversial outside of Jeopardy circles. Right. And I think inside the Jeopardy community. Yeah. yeah. We, we just, we, we know, right. Like that is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But, but it is not in any way controversial. This would not have been a difficult ruling to make. It would have been entirely consistent with, you know, the rules as they were covered in the contestant briefing. So right. it's a tough break for Ben. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and I'm bummed about it. Right. Cause like clearly he knew the answer, but like, you know, he knew, he knew but which he characters were being referenced. Right. Yeah. He, he knew he, the information. He just didn't have the spelling. Yeah, he got and he had the spelling, you know, wrong enough that it does not sound alike, right? Benedict and Benedict. Like, this is not a Barry Barry situation, right? Like, these are, (laughs) it is a, it is a, you know, fully pronounced consonant that is, that it's missing. Right. You know, you might, you might like, you know, you might not hit that T really hard when you say Benedict, but it's definitely there. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think there was any ambiguity here. No. But I, I realized I didn't say Ben made a cover bet of 12,201, so he drops down to second place. 
And that means that Lynn is the champion through, you know, proper wagering and everything. And Ben's run ends at nine games, whole lot of money, and will be returning for the Tournament of Champions. Yes. Faux show. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to Wednesday, where the contestants are Joyce Sun, a retired lawyer from Bloomfield, New Jersey, Ed Peterson, a planning technician from Orlando, Florida, and Lynn DeVito, a retired museum educator from Colorado Springs, Colorado, whose one-day cash winnings total 11800 And the Jeopardy round categories are Thanks a Million, Africa, Con Must Go, you remove the letters C-O-N from the front of a word to get the correct response, Teaching, some anagrams, State of the Union, and that's a wrap, everybody. These anagrams did not tickle me so much as the last one we had. Yeah. Have you ever used the term gut course? I have heard the term gut course. Has it been used by people who are our age? Absolutely not. Um, And the main reference that's coming to mind is when I was taking like a course in like ethnic literature in the U.S., like in literature by and focusing on like, you know, non-white, often immigrant communities and and some old old dude was like, that sounds like a gut course. Is that a gut course? <laughs> like, I'm like, would you what? would you be asking me that about British literature, sir? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, he would not. I will tell. I will tell you. He definitely would not have been asking no. me that about British literature. That okay? Because I've never heard that before. The kids say it's easy to pass. Like no kids are saying that. Yeah. Like, no. I assure you, no kids are saying that. Mm-mm. Yeah, the kids of the 1950s, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I thought the, the the range of raps in That's a Rap, Everybody, was fun. Yeah, it had, yes, it was a lot of different. Yeah, we options. had the Crunch Rap Supreme. We had Chrysalis is a, is a, what a caterpillar wraps itself in before becoming a butterfly. Mm-hmm. What to expect.com provides a step by step on how to do this for an infant, as in who doesn't love a baby burrito? Mm. That's swaddling. Mm. It's when you wrap the baby up real tight in the yeah. thing so that it feels all cozy. Yeah, make a little baby burrito. Yeah. Mm. My kids don't like me doing that to them anymore. Yeah. I mean, my six year old is like too big. I don't have a towel big enough to wrap around her anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but the younger one, I still like to. Yeah. And she wants her freedom or something. Okay. Yeah. They just keep growing. Yes, indeed they do. All right. Daily Double number one is in Africa at the $800 level. Pick number 22, Lynn uncovers it. She's at 1800 Ed is at 1000 Joyce is at 3600 And she wagers 1200 and gets the clue, when the British held Ghana as a colony, it was known as this due to the vast riches the region held. And she does not know, but that is the Gold Coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The rest of that category they got, which mm-hmm. is good. Yeah. Although it turned out to be all pretty much African geography, basically. Yeah. Anyway, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Lynn is at 3,200, Ed is at zero, and Joyce is at 5,600. <laughs> And the Double Jeopardy categories are These Bros Are Lit, Science, Training Day, with like a dash after the train or a hyphen after the train, mm-hmm. Overlaps, which is kind of like a before and after, except they 
mash the word to get more like a portmanteau. Yeah. Then to the fort and IMDB with D dot mm-hmm. B in quotation marks. Those are the initials of the people that you were there asking about. Yeah. A set of rules for formal locations in a Rocky Mountain U.S. state. It's proto-Colorado. That was the $800 level of overlaps. Yeah, I definitely didn't get that. Yeah. Ed did, so that's good. Yeah. Good job, Ed. They ended up not getting the $1,600 and $2,000 level of those. Those were left uncovered. They ran out of time in the round. Those are a couple of good ones not to get to because they... The 400 and 1200 were triple stumpers. So, yeah. you know, you're going <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to leave clues on the board. <laughs> Hopefully it's ones you weren't going to get anyway. Yeah. The $800 level of these bros are lit. Sadly for Greg Hefley, his older brother Roderick rules in the second book in this kids lit, kid lit series. That is Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And I have one kid who is just continuously listening to Diary of a Wimpy Kid audiobooks on an iPad that they're carrying around with them. So mm-hmm. they're not so, bad books, but if I never hear a single word about Greg Hefley, I would be fine with it. <laughs> yeah. It gets that way. Yeah. Plus the grownups in those books are all kind of like arbitrary jerks, you know? Mm, that's um, unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of grownups who are jerks. Yeah. But I don't want my kids necessarily like reading thinking about that, like assuming the grownups are going to be like that exactly yeah like, yeah right yeah daily double number two is in to the fort at the twelve hundred dollar level lynn finds it pick number nine she's at fifty two hundred with ed at thirty two hundred and joyce at seventy six hundred she wagers two thousand and gets the clue now a city it was founded in 1849 as a military outpost and named for a commander of the u.s army in texas and she tries, where is Houston? But they're looking for Fort Worth. Mm. Uh, and daily double number three is in the science category. Also at the $1,200 level, pick number 14. Ed finds this one. He's at 4,400. Lynn is at 3,200. Joyce is at 7,600. He wagers 1,600. I don't know. I'd have gone for the lead here. Maybe he doesn't mm-hmm. like science too much. The clue is, it's the measure of the size of the seismic waves generated by an earthquake. Charles Richter invented one way to measure it. And he said, what is a scale? But it is magnitude. We measure Mm -hmm. it in magnitudes. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Joyce is in a slim lead with 10,800 with Ed right behind her at 10,400. Lynn is still in the game with 6,400. The final Jeopardy category is classical music, and the clue is when the opera Lohengrin premiered in 1850, this man, a future in-law of the composer, was the conductor. This was a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. Did you know it? I bet you knew it. I did know it. Yeah. Lynn tried who is Toscanini. She wagered 5,000, which drops her down to 1,400. Ed tried who is Haydn with a 2401 wager, which puts him at 7,999. And Joyce tried who is Rachmaninoff with a $10,500 wager, dropping her down to 300. So she's going to finish in first place. And Ed is the champion. And we were looking for Franz List yes. here. Yes. Franz List. 
Did you know that there is a <clears throat> there's a word coined from that time called listomania? listomania? Yes. Have I talked about this before? I think maybe you've touched on it, but the big thing is that I think I heard about it on misinformation. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, they did a good one, a good episode on, on listomania. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I have a whole lot to add here, but maybe you do. Anything you want to add about no. <laughs> Wagner and List? No, I mean, like like they said, he married List's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And she, yeah. like, I don't know, she was helpful to him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't want to get into Wagner. Yeah. So yeah. on a Thursday. Yeah. So we get a new we get a new champion, two new champions in a row, first time in a wow. while. Uh, so on Thursday, we have the contestants Megan Brott, a library ass- assistant from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, Jesse Chin, an accounting director from Bayside, New York, and Ed Peterson, a planning technician from Orlando, Florida, who's one day total cash winnings is $7,999. We have the Jeopardy round categories, coastal waters, flag terminology, up in the airline, numerical words and phrases, our returning champion, and a doctor from Chicago, Illinois. (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh man, just imagine what if they had called that shot? Yeah. Can you imagine the conspiracy theories? Mm -hmm. Oh man. That'd have been People wild. would lose their collective <coughs> minds. I, mean, I I went oh. back just to just to be sure. Like I couldn't remember when I was watching this, like what Ben Chan's like profession and hometown. Mm-hmm. I was pretty sure he wasn't Chicago, but like I went to double check just to be sure that they hadn't like you know, like they can't write a category for him. But I went to just no. check and be sure for whatever. Like they absolutely cannot. Like that they can't. No, of course yeah. Not. Uh, I know that, and it popped into my head anyway. So. It was it was a funny it was I thought that was a funny yeah. set of category titles though. Yeah, that, that was funny. Yeah, that's good. Why are airlines such a big trivia thing? I don't know. Airlines and airports. Is it just because it's a list of things to know that you can, can know? I guess. I don't know. It does it does feel like it's been a lot of airlines, especially the last, I don't know, couple months maybe on Jeopardy. Yeah. Maybe they heard us say it and they are leaning into it really hard. I don't, that, that doesn't, I don't think so. I, I think that we, we started griping about it after they recorded these. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Did I talk about flag terminology? Did you I did. Deep dive yes. on flags? You did a, you did a deep dive on vexillology. Vexillology, yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's getting to the point I don't even remember all the deep dives I did. Uh huh. I was like, I feel like I talked about this stuff from the flag terminology. Yeah, you did. Mm hmm. That's right. So the part of the flag farthest from the pole is the fly. The part closest to it is this, which sounds like what you do when you raise one up. It's hoist. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the uh, the charge is the flag's main graphic element. The contestants were asked to name what the charge of California's flag is. That's mm-hmm. a bear. Jesse got it's that one. It's a bear. I feel bad for Ed. At the $800 level of up in the airline, this nation's airways went with Q-Suite as the name of its business class. I tried what is Qantas, which makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But they were looking for Qatar Airways. Qatar, yeah. Qatar, whatever. We had a, a $200 level triple stumper in numerical words and phrases. It's the basic form most taxpayers use to report income and file their return. Ed tried what is a W-2. Megan tried what is a W-4. They were looking for a 1040. W2 and W4 are W2. I can't remember what a W4 is, but a W2 is what your employer 
complete, right? Like yeah, that's you not you don't you shouldn't be doing those unless you are the employer. You don't do that as a as a an individual. Yeah. Yeah. Daily double number one is in our returning champion at the thousand dollar level. Pick number thirteen. Jesse finds it. He's at twenty six hundred with Ed at two thousand and Megan at zero, and he wagers just a thousand. The true value of the clue here, and gets the clue. This man had the astronomical luck of being honored twice with the New York ticker tape parade in nineteen sixty two and nineteen ninety eight. He tried. Who is Buzz Aldrin? Uh, I think you know. Picking up on. Some of the clues within the clue, mm-hmm. but John Glenn is who they were looking for here. Right. Yeah. Man, was that already 98 when he was like the oldest person in space? I guess so. I, I wasn't sure what 1998 was for, but. I think that yeah. might have been it. Mm-hmm. That was only 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oldest man to fly in space. 1998. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ed is at 5,600. Jesse's at 2,800. Megan's at 3,000. The double Jeopardy categories are Galactic Vacations, Shakespeare and His World, Euro Coins, Music of the Month, Politicians, and Crossword Clues V. Went straight into a Crossword Clue triple stumper at the $1,200 level. Heifetz or Midori nine letters. Those are violinists. Mm-hmm. Violinist is Violinist, what they're, yeah. yeah. Heifetz is not a name I remember. Should I? No, I don't think so. I didn't. I didn't remember these when he, when they you know when he when Mayim read the correct response. I was like, oh yeah, those are. Yeah, but I see Midori, and I think Midori sour. Right. Yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, what what cocktail can I come up with that has a V? So I just mm-hmm. went in the wrong direction from the start. Yeah. I got there eventually based on Midori because, you know, she was a recent child prodigy violinist when I was a child non-prodigy violinist. A struggling violinist. (laughs) So, you know, her name came up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, my my first association at this point is Midori Sours. Yeah. (laughs) Green melon liqueur or whatever it is. They did pretty well with these Shakespeare clues, except for that. Well, they did. They did well with the 400, 800 and 1200, I guess. And we, yeah. Then we hit some difficulties. Right. But they knew the first. Well, Ed knew the first folio. Megan knew that Hamlet's to be or not to be speech is this, which is similar to a monologue. It's a soliloquy. I don't know. Yeah. I thought those. those yeah. Things. Yeah, and they didn't. <laughs> they were almost right with the sixteen hundred dollar. The clue is yeah. this three word nickname for Shakespeare is based on part, in part, on his place of birth in fifteen sixty four. Ed guessed what's the Bard of Stratford. Megan guessed what's the Bard of Stratford upon Avon. It's just the Bard of Avon. Mm-hmm. It wasn't reversed, so I'm I'm sure somebody did some research to find like, was he ever referred to as the Bard of Stratford yeah. or anything, but really it's just the Bard of Avon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the second daily double is at the $2,000 level of Shakespeare and his world, just below that. And it was the next pick. Megan uncovered it. She's at 3,400. Ed is at 9,200. Jesse's at 4,400. 
And she wagered 2,000, the value of the clue, and got the clue. If you were part of this earthy group taking in a play at the Globe Theater, you paid the lowest amount to stand in the pit and watch. And she guessed, what are the the dirt something? Which I like, you know? Yeah. Something is more likely to be right than nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. But that is incorrect. It's the groundlings. Yeah, I didn't know that one either. I also did not. Yeah. And daily double number three is the $2,000 level of politicians. Pick number 17. Jesse finds this one. He's at 5,600 with Ed at 9,200 and Megan at 3,800. Jesse wagers 4,000 and gets the clue. He talked about being a Vietnam vet, five-term senator, and secretary of state in the memoir Every Day is Extra. And he gets it correct. It's John Kerry. So going into Final Jeopardy, Ed is at 12,400. Jesse is at 14,800 and Megan is at 6,200. The final Jeopardy category, Asia. (laughs) And the clue, trained as an engineer, Premier Li Peng championed this in 1992. It would ultimately displace over a million people. And they all got it. Megan put, what is the Three Gorges River Dam? Mm -hmm. I guess, yeah. The inclusion of river there is interesting. I I feel like that might almost make it wrong. But yeah, I guess it is technically a river dam. And she wagered 1200 and got it with what is Three Gorges Dam, wagered 2401, and Jesse made a cover bet of 10,001 with also what is the Three Gorges Dam. So Jesse is the new champion going into Friday. Mm-hmm. And on Friday, the contestants are Alice Ciciora, a political scientist and researcher originally from Palatine, Illinois. Deandra D'Alessio, a technical writer from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and Jesse Chin, an accounting director from Bayside, New York, whose one-day cash winnings total $24,801. And the Jeopardy round categories are That's Adorable, Spanish Professions, Food Stuff, America in the 1700s, Curses, Baseball, and <laughs> Research. I enjoyed the Curses, Baseball. Yeah. They purposely... Well, purposely, I shouldn't say, but the writers, I think, notice, not- notably left out the curse of the Billy Goat. As a Cubs fan, I would say the greatest of baseball curses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I know a lot of other people would argue that I, mm-hmm. the, the $400 level, the curse of the Bambino, right, would be the greatest one. But that's just because the Red Sox, I don't know, hold that. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It didn't. It, it mm, didn't even make triple digits. Like, come on! It's not. Is that even really a curse? Didn't even last a hundred years. Come on. Wait, a curse of the Billy Goat, which of course I'm fully familiar with and just knew off the top of my head. Certainly don't have a Wikipedia mm-hmm. tab open. Lasted seventy one years. Okay. Now, when did they win the World Series before that? Oh, okay. I don't know. Nineteen oh eight. Sounds sounds like you know. All right. I do. So. The drought was over a hundred years. I yeah, the curse I guess technically began in the forties. I'll accept that, but it's almost like it reached backward in history, you know. Yeah. Not that I feel strongly about this or anything, but I was excited to learn at the six hundred dollar level. Japan's Hanshin Tigers have felt the curse of the Colonel since nineteen eighty five when fans threw a statue of this fast food icon into a river. That's. Colonel Sanders, I that is shocking <laughs> mm-hmm. and amazing. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 
Un- unlike the NFL quarterbacks category, I I was able to get some toeholds here, <laughs> despite mm-hmm. not knowing a lot about baseball. And also, we hit a couple of the things about baseball that I do know. So, yeah. A rough break for, for Jesse at the $200 level, where he provided the name of the team instead of the name of the city. The curse of William Penn hit this city's, city's teams after Liberty Place Tower exceeded the height of Penn's statue on City Hall. Jesse said, what are the Phillies? But DeAndre got the rebound because we are looking for the city, which is Philadelphia, of course. Yes. Yeah. The Athletics were Philadelphia's team before they moved to Oakland. Huh. In case you didn't know that. I don't think I did. But now you know. Yeah. My kids did great in the That's Adorable category. They got the 400 and the $600 levels. Mm. Yeah. Red Panda. Yeah. We have red pandas at the Bronx Zoo, which is right near us. So we know red pandas. Well, we also have snow leopards, actually. Mm. Or a snow leopard, which was the $600 level. Nice. Yeah. Red pandas are so cute. Red pandas are very cute. Yeah. Snow leopards are adorable when they're cubs. They get, they get you know, <laughs> they, they attain gravitas <laughs> as, they, right. as they grow. <laughs> But that's one way to put it, yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm really tired here. <laughs> I don't know. That's fine. <laughs> Regretting my choice of words. But yeah, I wouldn't characterize an adult snow leopard as like adorable. No, probably not. Yeah. Terrifying, perhaps. Yeah. Intimidating. Beautiful. They are beautiful. They're beautiful maybe, animals. Maybe not adorable. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in that's adorable, actually just below the snow leopard clue. It's pick number 21, and Alice uncovers it. She's at 1,800. Jesse's at 3,800. DeAndre's at 3,200. And she wagers 1,500, just to get on that odd number train. The clue is the scientific name of one species of sloth includes didactylus, meaning this, part of its common name. And she guesses what is toe? What is a toe? But they are looking for two-toed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I guess a toe would specify one toe. Yes. Oh, yes, it is. It is a two-toed sloth. Yep. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jesse is in the lead at 5,400. DeAndre's at 4,600. And Alice is in the red at negative 300. Double Jeopardy categories are world cities. You just made that stuff up. Quotes. That book character does things technology, and research mm-hmm. with R-E-E in quotation marks. Just a real, real sad missed opportunity for Alice there in the $400 clue of that book character does things. Mm, yeah. Obeys instructions, eat me, sees a cat that's all smiles, lets the cards fall where they may, and Jesse got in first. Would have been great for Alice to say who's Alice. Yeah, that would have been fun. In that category, also we we had a, we had a few triple stumpers in that category. The twelve hundred dollar level leaves town, suspected in Huck's murder, gets on a raft with the non murdered Huck. Alice <laughs> tried who is Tom Sawyer, who you know does does appear in literature with Huckleberry Finn, right? In the Adventures right. of Tom Sawyer, but the the raft part should, if you know sure. if you know these works, point you toward. Yeah. The Adventures of, is it The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? Yeah, it's The Adventures of, right? Yeah. And the the other main character there is Jim, 
Jim was who they were looking for here. And they also missed the $1,600 level about Billy Budd and then the $2,000 level, which I could tell was pointing toward Heart of Darkness, but I couldn't remember the character's name, who was Charlie yeah. Marlowe. Yeah, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah. I also couldn't remember. All I can remember is Mr. Kurtz. Yes, that was the one I had. And I was like, not him, the other one. Yep. Yeah. Oh, everybody just memorize your capitals, said the person who's not really practicing capitals regularly. <laughs> but the $2,000 level of World Cities at 92 feet below sea level, Baku in this country is the lowest national capital. Alice got it. It's Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, if you if you work the capitals, they're going to come up, you know? Yep. Yeah. Always good. Always good yeah. to have. All right. Daily double number two is in you just made that stuff up at the $1,600 level. Pick number 24. Jesse finds it. He's at $7,400 with Deandra at $9,400 and Alice at $6,900. He is looking to take the lead with a $4,000 wager and he gets the clue. It's the very hard to get substance that causes humans to set up shop on Pandora. And he remembers the cinematic classic Avatar. As do I. Have you seen <laughs> um, I haven't I seen Avatar. <laughs> Wait, what? It's that's from Parks oh. and Recreation. Oh, okay. <laughs> I really need to watch Parks and Recreation. You it's really much do. better use of my time than Avatar. But not better than Tears of the Kingdom. So you have no. <laughs> anyway, I, did, I he remembers. I, I actually did not remember the name of the stuff, which is unobtainium. 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 That just brilliantly named. So great. So I mean, uh, James Cameron only spent a decade on that. Sh- there, oh, good lord. I'm sure plenty of people listening like Avatar, and that's fine. You can like what you like. The Avatar ride at Disney World is fine. It's a good ride. Based <laughs> on a based on a disappointing on a intellectual property. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Daily Devil number three is in technology. Two picks later at pick number twenty six. Jesse also uncovers it. He is at this point at twelve thousand six hundred. DeAndre's at ninety four hundred. Alice is at sixty nine hundred, and he wagers four thousand. And gets the clue. This Elon Musk company says it aims to design a fully implantable, cosmetically invisible brain computer interface. And oh, he makes just the deepest pull here of an mm-hmm. office reference. And he says, Oh man, what is Sarah Kaya Compson? Okay, this is from when Pam is at art school and Jim and Pam are on the phone on that like episode where they're just having a hard time connecting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in that episode it might be in a different episode around that, but she's trying to explain this story of like what happened. And he's not really able to pay attention because things are going on. And she says something like Sarah Kai comes in and blah, blah, blah. And he says, wait, who's Sarah Kai comes in. She's like, no, Sarah Kai comes in, pay attention. I only have like four minutes. I And uh, yeah, anyway, it's a, it's an incredibly deep pull. It is like, it is like a, a throwaway line in the middle of a scene where you're not really supposed to pay attention to what the words actually are. Uh-huh. Yeah. So good huh. on you, man. Way to go, Jesse. Is there is there a is there a connection that I'm not getting to like Elon Musk to the clue? or his, Yeah. No, absolutely not. He's just Abs- a, there's Okay. Mm, cool. Nope. I there good is. for him. Yeah, he just he just had an office quote in his head ready to go. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there you go. Huh. That's <laughs> great job, Jesse, though. And at the end of the Jeff 
for the, the double jeopardy round. Alice has the lead with 8,900. Jesse's at 8,600. Deandra's at 7,800. The final jeopardy category is groups in history. And the clue is the third most famous group that invaded Britain in the fifth century. They gave their name to the continental part of Denmark. This was a triple stumper. Deandra tried who are the Visigoths with a $4,501 wager, which drops her to $3,299. Jesse tried who are the Normans. They would be later. Later. And he wagers everything, which is a strategic error. You could make a case. You're expecting Alice to have to make a huge wager. You could make a case that you should cover in an all cover an all in from Deandra, but yeah. even so, that's that's not everything. That's the math isn't coming together for me. That's like seven thousand, which I guess would have dropped him below Deandra. Doesn't change the outcome. Yeah. If he if he decided to do that, it would have been similar outcome to what he ended up with. Yeah. Anyway, he drops to zero. Alice tried. Who are the Danes? That's a little too on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, if it's better than nothing. Yeah. Could be right, you know? <laughs> could have been right. When it could have been. I, I, mm, the, the term the Danes always brings me back to the time when I referred to Danish people uh, living in Denmark as a child and like had like the know-it-all kids sitting next to me. I mean, we were both know-it-all kids. The uh, know-it-all yes. kids sitting next to me roll their eyes and say, Dutch. <laughs> no, that's something else. <laughs> anyway, so Danes is that's, a, that's not it. Alice has wagered eighty three oh one, which is a cover bet, dropping her down to five hundred ninety nine. So Deandra is the winner here with three thousand two hundred ninety nine. The Jutes are the group that we were looking for here. The Jutes, Jutland, Jutes, 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 Jutes. Is it? I don't. Is I don't it? Know. I feel. I, I think w- Mayim said with a. I don't know. All right. Wikipedia has it with a like with a the IPA International Phonetic Al- Alphabet like pronunciation guide has it with a J as in jam. Okay. Juice. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I cool. did not know that, but Mayan pronounced it correctly, I guess. Good for her. Yeah. Anyway, Deandra gets the win. So we'll see her on Monday. Yes, we will. Yeah. So, hey, that's the week, and this is the break in the middle of the episode when we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotable. So you can go over there and slide us a couple bucks a month if you want to help us with the costs of making the podcast. We put the quiz questions on there after we record, if we remember to, which we have like three weeks in a row now. Yeah. I think three weeks, four weeks. We're, we're I on even a roll. remembered the next day. I was like, oh, uh-huh. no, I didn't do that, and then I did it. I'm mm-hmm. so proud of Good myself. Good job. Thanks. Yeah. So so go to the Patreon to slide us a couple bucks a month. And <laughs> if you if you want to reach out to Kyle with job opportunities, you can find us on Twitter. You can um, always do that too. Yeah. Do, anyway, the Patreon helps us with, you know, hosting and software and things like that. And we greatly appreciate those of you who are helping us not lose money doing this thing that we find great joy in and we hope you do too. There are more important things in the world though. So, you know, if you're... Uh, if your resources are limited, we totally get it. If you want to spend your money on other things and some of the causes that matter to us are listed in the show notes. So, hey, Kyle, what do you think we're talking about for the deep dive? Um, there were nothing has jumped out at me as like, I think that's it. 
Yeah. <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But but I got um, something eventually. Yeah, I mean there were a lot of triple stumpers. So yeah. we, we had options, but there's nothing that really is like throwing me out there. I mean, my first one is gonna be Shakespeare question mark, given the final Jeopardy and the missed part of Avon. Yeah, no, sorry. Okay. Are you gonna talk about Jonathan Edwards? Yes. Yes. Mm. And more specifically, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, because, you know, I'm trying to get away from these like massive, you know, kind of absurdly huge scope deep dives and and get a little get a little focused. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I succeeded. And, uh, you know, but yeah, we're going to talk. We'll talk Jonathan Edwards and we'll talk Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I'll touch on a couple, you know, kind of things related to that as we as we go through. Um. Because if we were doing just Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I think either I'd have to read you the sermon or it would be a very short deep dive indeed. But but yeah, so yeah, it was Friday, America in the 1700s. The $800 level in 1741, Jonathan Edwards delivered his fiery sermon, Sinners in the Hands of This. And nobody tried it. That's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you know only two sermon titles, I guess that should be one of them. What's the other one? We'll get to that in the quiz. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's talk about Jonathan Edwards a little bit. We'll get into the sermon in a minute. So Jonathan Edwards was born in, on October 5, 1703. Um, he was an American revivalist preacher, philosopher, congregationalist, theologian. He was the only son of Timothy Edwards, who was a minister at East Windsor, Connecticut, modern day South Windsor. And uh, his mother was Esther Stoddard daughter of Reverend Solomon Stoddard of Northampton, Massachusetts. Jonathan Edwards entered Yale College in 1716 at not quite 13 years old. They did things a little differently back then, hmm. where he studied for, I think, like six years. The The chronology gets a little fuzzy there as he makes his way through his teens and his, and his studies. But anyway, eventually he completed his studies at Yale. And then he had some various jobs. He was a supply pastor. If you're not in the church world, supply pastor is like, you're filling in. You're not like the official, like we call, we call it pulpit supply when somebody is, you know, just like preaching for a week while the minister is away on vacation. This sounds like he was maybe filling in between like, like with a church that didn't have a pastor and he was, he filled in for kind of a longer stretch he was like in charge of Yale, it sounds like, or like jointly in charge of Yale College for a little bit, if I understood correctly. But like also academic administration was like different and less formalized in the 1700s than it is now. But you know, uh, clergy and academic roles immediately after graduating. And on February 15th, 1727, he was ordained minister at Northampton and assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who, as we said, was a noted minister. In the same year, he married Sarah Pierpont. She was 17. He would have been 24 at the time, I guess. You know, we, we've seen creepier age gaps. Um, from a notable New England clerical family, her, fam- her father was James Pierpont, a founder of Yale College. Her mother was the granddaughter of Thomas Hooker, who was a you know, noted clergyman. Uh, so Solomon Stoddard and Jonathan Edwards were pastor and, and like assistant pastor at this Northampton church 
for a couple of years. And then Solomon's daughter died on February 11th, 1729, leaving to his grandson the sole ministerial charge of the church, which was one of the largest and wealthiest congregations in the colony. On July 8th, 1731, Jonathan Edwards preached in Boston. The public lecture afterwards published under the title, God Glorified in the Work of Redemption by the Greatness of Man's Dependence Upon Him in the Whole of It, which was his first public refutation or attack on Arminianism. So hmm. Arminianism, not to be confused with Armenian, right? Armin, right. Armini, Arminianism. I'm not going to get too deep into it because we know what happens when I start getting too deep into theology, but Arminianism. Arminius was a 17th century Dutch theologian whose theology is to the untrained eye, pretty close to Calvinism, but not close enough for, for Calvinists, some people for Calvinists or Calvinists. So in Calvinism and sort of reformed Protestant theology in general, we have the idea that salvation is by grace through faith. So theologians are moving away from the idea that salvation is in any way earned. It is entirely a gift given by the grace of God to those who have faith in Jesus. But then this problem arises, isn't having faith a thing that you do, mm. right? That you can choose to do. And if you are choosing to have faith, thereby like accessing salvation aren't you then like in some way like earning or like taking agency in whether you're saved mm -hmm. or not. And that's a big problem if you're really committed to this, like, you know, by God's grace alone and not by your own works idea. Right. So like in strict, like traditional Calvinism, whether you have faith or not is also God's decision. Right. God gives that to some people and that's, and that is, and that's predestination, right? Predestination, uh, yeah. That is, that is predestination, right? Like God has chosen some people to have faith and therefore, you know, receive salvation and other people, God has not chosen to have faith and therefore not to receive salvation. And that's predestination. The problem there is that then God, God looks really arbitrary and like kind of a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> and so Arminianism deviate slightly from Calvinism, attributing slightly more agency to humans and slightly less to God in order to kind of get around that, like, wow, God sounds like kind of a jerk thing, right? Like that God tries to give some people faith, but that ultimately people can accept that or not, uh, I think is Arminianism. Anyway, it's pretty fine grained differences, but, but you know, strict Calvinists still don't care for Arminianism. So Edwards preaches this refutation of Arminianism and kind of becomes more prominent on the public scene, you know, enters into like this, this, you know, kind of, you know, public discourse, like, you know, takes a stand, whatever. In 1733, a spiritual revival began in Northampton and reached inten great intensity by the winter of 17. 34 and the following spring that it threatened the business of the town. People were like, so like, you know, deep into their like religious devotion and fervor in six months, nearly 300 youths were admitted to the church of the 1100 living in the town. During this revival, Edwards studied the process of conversion in all its phases and varieties. 
recording his observations and documenting them in a work that he published as A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton, published in 1737. Rolls right off the tongue. Yeah. And the revival spread, and uh, there were revivals as well in the Connecticut River Valley, New Jersey. There were there was criticism of these revivals as well, with many New Englanders fearing that Edwards had led his flock into fanaticism. Mm-hmm. Edwards became acquainted acquainted with George Whitfield, an Anglican evangelist, one of the founders of Methodism, who was traveling to the colonies on a revival tour in 1739-1740. They worked together to orchestrate Whitfield's trip first through Boston and then to Northampton. And revivals sprang up around that preaching tour. And it was at one of those where Edwards preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He had preached it previously to his own congregation in Northampton, but then he preached it most famously in Enfield, Connecticut in 1741. It was highly influential, and it also is, you know, pretty characteristic of the theology of the First Great Awakening. So, the First Great Awakening, let's pause for a moment and talk about Great Awakenings. We use that term to refer to periods of renewed religious devotion in especially American Christian history, although the First Great Awakening also, we you know, we see it in England. But I generally see great awakenings as a, you know, as a way that people frame like American religious history. So the first great awakening was the one that we're talking about, the one that has Jonathan Edwards kind of at the center of it in the 1730s into 1740 or 41. This one is sometimes just called the great awakening, but not usually. If something is being called just the great awakening, often it's this more often I I find it's the second Great Awakening. Mm. Major names in the first Great Awakening are the ones that are coming up in this deep dive. John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, John, Jonathan Edwards, James Davenport, Gilbert Tennant. We're not going to get into Davenport and Tennant here, but those are those are some some names that are associated with the first Great Awakening. And that one's like under a decade. The second Great Awakening, the one that I more often hear called just the Great Awakening. The dates are a little fuzzy depending on kind of what you count as part of it, but 1790 to 1840, which like, that's a long period. It's a pretty broad net. And so there's a lot of stuff that fits in here. Revival movements in Kentucky and Tennessee. There is the founding of some major new religious movements in the US that fit within those dates. Seventh-day Adventists, the Church of Latter-day Saints. There are like major religious institutions and missionary societies and religiously affiliated like colleges um, that are all founded during that period. So some names of note with the with the second great awakening richard allen of the like african methodist episcopal church francis asbury associated with methodism the beechers right henry wardley mm-hmm. beecher lyman beecher you know, harriet peacher stows in that family also although you know she's not a minister charles finney is a big one finney's a major kind of traveling preacher of the second great awakening some scholars identify third and fourth great awakenings, but there's less consensus about those. So third, the proposed dates are like absurdly long, in my opinion, 1855 to 1930, somebody proposed, right? Like, like mm. if you're, if it starts 10, 10 years after the previous one ended, and it goes for 80 years, like, what are you doing? Really? I think. Yeah, maybe it's um, just the same right. thing. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe you need to find. Or like, maybe we need to focus it in or like, yeah. Um, but anyway, the 
think about I would I would point toward in eighteen in the eighteen seventies we see the founding of the Christian Science Movement, the Jehovah's Witnesses Society for Ethical Culture, which is non theist, but you know, really, I think comes out of that same religious impulse. Later in those like lo- absurdly long dates, we see kind of the rise of the social gospel, the founding of YMCA's, which now we just think of them as a gym, <laughs> but fits in with some of the other kind of movements within there. But that's that's what people have characterized as a third great awakening. And then there's really no consensus about a fourth great awakening. But there are some scholars who've you know who who use that you know who who think of maybe 1960s to 80s ish as a fourth great awakening, you know, kind of Mm. Billy Graham, rise of evangelicalism, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, so but we're in the first great awakening here. And in 1741, at this revival, Jonathan Edwards preaches sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's based on Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. And in particular, the phrase their foot shall slide in due time. And also, Amos chapter 9, verses 2 to 3. Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence I will thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out of thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. So typical of the style, the preaching style of the time, the sermon has this kind of slow progression of points ordered in multiple lists. So first, there's an explication of the scripture texts and a drawing out of their implications. And then there's a shift into applying it to the congregation and exhorting them to renewed devotion. I'm not going to get into all of the points. There's like, you know, a list of four observations and then 10 implications and then 10, you know, like it's, it's there's a bunch of lists, of like like enumerated kind of lists of observations and points and connections, whatever. But I will read some excerpts. So a little from the beginning, the expression I have chosen for my text, their foot shall slide in due time seems to imply the following doings relating to the punishment and destruction to which these wicked Israelites were exposed, that they were always exposed to destruction as one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to fall. This is implied in the manner of their destruction coming upon them being represented by their foot sliding. The same is expressed in Psalm 73, 18, truly thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. Two, it implies that they were always exposed to sudden unexpected destruction, as he that walks in slippery places is every moment liable to fall. He cannot foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning, which is also expressed in Psalm 73, 18, 19. So that's kind of, you know, that how he kind of unpacks the text and kind of is is close reading through about you know this image of of fall like a slippery place and oh gosh what was it their foot shall slide in due time right so then he moves into this list of 10 points kind of you know expanding on on this that god may cast the wicked into hell at any moment that the wicked deserve to be cast into hell that the living wicked at this moment are condemned to hell and, you know, on it goes to point number 10, which I'm quoting here. God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell one moment. God certainly has made no promises either of eternal life or of any deliverance or preservation from eternal death, but what are contained in the covenant of grace, the promises that are given in Christ. And so then, you know, he he's, you know, kind of laid out this, I you know, op- like close read the scripture, right? Laid out this idea that, 
sinners are justly condemned and, you know, in imminent, you know, mortal like danger for their for their souls and then moves into, you know, kind of applying it to the congregation who is listening. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you, that you are out of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand on or anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It's only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. And so he goes on like that, you know, kind of expanding on the the miserable fate of his listeners. Yeah, um, <laughs> cool. yeah it's great. It's great. Love that as a as a as a, as a preacher. This is fine. There's this one. <laughs> there's this one passage that really stood out to me that has has come up. I think in some in some of my I've, I've studied this text, you know, academically as well. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. And is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand, God's hand, that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you've sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. This is <laughs> What? Wait, what? <laughs> imagine, imagine. If I was like, wait, no, I thought I was doing the right thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, and then, you know, he, so he, you know, threatens and terrifies his listeners for a while and then ends by speaking about the many people who have converted and returned to faith and exhorts the listeners to do the same and be like them. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. This is fine. Fear is the best motivator. (laughs) Yeah. So the sermon is generally characterized as fire and brimstone preaching and understandably so it is important to note though that edwards was not an especially emotive preacher he did not shout he tended to speak quietly his delivery was you know kind of maybe even a little bit dry moving his audience slowly from point to point kind of inexorably drawing to his conclusion which i think is fundamentally thought and theologically not great Mm -hmm. Just to just to be clear where I stand, which I don't think should be ambiguous at this point. But anyway, anyway, not an especially emotive preacher. Nevertheless, a firsthand account describes the sermon having a major impact on listeners with emotional outbursts, shrieking, crying, moaning, coming from the pews and those who are who were convicted of their sinfulness and, you know, need to repent. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find solid documentation of this, but I remember studying this sermon in like American religious history classes and encountering the idea that the image of the slippery slope, which Edwards is getting from scripture and the term of backsliding were kind of further popularized or became kind of common religious terms and ideas in part due to this sermon. Later in life, Edwards fell out of favor as a minister. A council of church leaders voted to end his pastorate after he had failed to bring in a single new member in like four years, and the congregation ratified their decision. Though he continued to live in the town 
and preach in the church from time to time. He was made the president of what was then called the College of New Jersey, now it's Princeton, in 1758, succeeding his son-in-law, Aaron Burr Sr., who had died. If you remember the song from Hamilton, Wait For It, where... Aaron Bird Jr. sings, my grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher, but there are things that the homilies and hymns don't teach you. That is, that's a reference to Jonathan Edwards. Anyway, he became the president of what is now Princeton, but not died not long after that due to complications of an inoculation against smallpox. Hmm. Vaccines are safe and effective, and we have, you know. So you can't test vaccines. <laughs> we, we, I mean, at the time, they were not using the methods we were using now. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> at all. <laughs> at all. Anyway, so that's that's a little bit about Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a little bit about Jonathan Edwards, a little bit about Great Awakenings. Um, Very nice. Yeah. So hopefully it wasn't too obscure and, uh, no. you know, made this very, you know, it's an important work, even if I do, you know, find it kind of repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, historically significant. For it sure. is majorly historically significant. And uh, yeah, and it's, I mean, if anybody wants to go find it and read it, it's not too terribly long. You know, sermons were long then, but they were, you know, an hour long or something, which you can read in a lot less than, a lot less than that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, I don't know, like, maybe like, I think eight or nine pages. Uh, yeah, it's not terribly Yeah, it's not, it's not too terribly long. But you know, I tried to give some highlights. So, you know, if anybody wants to go read it, it's hopefully, hopefully you'll, you won't like, you know, it'll be interesting, but you won't, you won't be like, oh, she missed major stuff here. Anyway, that's that. And how about a quiz? How about a quiz? How about a quiz? All right. So we don't really have a theme here. I've got, you know, everything kind of ties into various aspects of the deep dive but there's not kind of a unifying theme. And I tried not to put too much religious stuff in here, but, you know, tying into the deep dive, we we do have a couple of religion tie-ins. So question one, the kinds of threatening, fear-inducing rhetorical techniques that Edward used in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God are not exclusive to early American Christianity. When I was in college, I wrote a paper about a television program called The Way of the Master where Christian evangelists would stop passersby on the street and try to make a logical case to them that they were going to hell unless they converted. That program was hosted by what actor? He became a born-again Christian in his teens, which led to his involvement with various Christian media, including the Left Behind series. But he first became famous for his role in the sitcom Growing Pains. Ooh. What is that guy's name? Oh, I'm not going to pull it. Oh, I mean, I assume it's not Leo DiCaprio. No. Um, he was on Growing Pains, right? For a while. Was he? I think he I was, think, yeah. I think he was. Oh, man. I'm not going to pull it, and it's going to bug the crap out of me because I know his name. I'm not going to waste the time, though. I'm going to pass. All right. It's Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron. I knew, yeah. I knew it was Kirk. Mm-hmm. But Michael kept coming into my head, and I was like, that's not it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, couldn't get to the Cameron. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Kirk okay. Cameron, who was on Growing Pains, and then, you know, well, a lot of his a lot of his later life stuff is, or, you know, his adult stuff is Christian media, the protagonist of the Left Behind film series. He was in Fireproof. He was in 
Saving Christmas, and he hosted this kind of horrible, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> terrible show. So, so distressing. She's oh. really leaned really hard into all the culture wars stuff. Yeah, really. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, you got the topic of the deep dive, and so you are at ten points. Question two. The procedure which led to Edward's death was likely variolation, in which powder from the scabs of those infected with smallpox was introduced onto scratches on the skin. This method was used for hundreds of years before Edward Jenner discovered that infection with what milder virus resulted in immunity to smallpox? I believe that would be cowpox. You are correct. It is cowpox. It is cowpox. Yes. Yeah, I didn't realize. Maybe you covered this when you did your your vaccines deep dive. But yeah, hundreds of years of using like powdered scabs. <laughs> yeah, like inoculation wasn't new to Jenner. Doing it in a way that didn't kill, you know, half the people that did it. Yeah. <laughs> was new. <laughs> yeah. They- the understanding that viruses can be similar mm-hmm. to other, like in that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, but the, the the variolation with like powdered smallpox scabs did reduce deaths, but yeah, people people got very sick from from those from those earlier methods sometimes, including Jonathan Edwards. All right. You are at 20 points. Question three, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is one of the most famous Christian sermons, but thankfully, in my humble opinion, not the most famous. Probably the most famous is a series of teachings by Jesus himself, containing passages including the Beatitudes. That sermon is best known by what name, which references it as it appears in the gospel according to Matthew? I don't know. I don't have my 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 gospels memorized. So I, I mean, it makes. I think it's the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, you're correct. It's the Sermon okay. on the Mount. I, yeah. I don't remember that being specifically referenced. Matthew doesn't describe it as the Sermon on the Mount, but it describes Jesus being on a mountain and preaching. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, in the Gospel according to Luke, we see pretty much the same teachings. You know, there are some like wording variations between that are different between the two. But in that one, it says he's on the plane. So when we're talking about the the Luke version, we call it the Sermon on the Plain. But generally, you know, generally the Sermon on the Mount is the, it's how people know it. Yeah. All right. You're at 30 points. Very nice. Question four. The first great awakening was the period of increased religiosity in America in the 1730s to early 1740s. What video game is one of the few in the Legend of Zelda series that does not take place in Hyrule and instead takes place on, Co- oh, how do you pronounce it? Koholent Island? I, th- I, well, I would pronounce it Koholent Island. That would be Link's Awakening. Yes. <laughs> from, that is from- a <laughs> fantastic question and game. I was like, how am I going to ask some questions that are not about religion? Aha, Awakening. <laughs> Link's Awakening. Yes. The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, one of my almost 10-year-old's favorites. And yeah. One of my favorites, but I played it on the Game Boy uh, back in the day. Yeah. I had I was going to put into the into my notes what like what platforms it's on, but I know it's on Switch for sure now. It's on, yeah, they yeah. they remade it for Switch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, you're at 40 points. Not nice. bad. We're getting to the real short questions that I wrote in the last okay. couple of minutes before 10 p.m. All right. 
Question five. The preaching of Jonathan Edwards is often characterized with the phrase fire and brimstone. What is the symbol of the element that was historically referred to as brimstone? Well, brimstone is brimstone is sulfur. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's just S. It is just S. You are correct. Yeah. Brimstone, I think, means something like burning stone. Hmm. Its association with hell may come from like its connection with like volcanoes. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, hey, you're at 50 points. And we're going to call the last category authors. Oh, <laughs> I don't like that. But you know what? I got to go for the triple digits. What about yeah, all? I don't blame you. And I hope it was a good choice. I think I tried to. Tried, yeah, I think I think it's a good choice. All right. So for 100 points, Jonathan Edwards was an ancestor of many notable figures. We've mentioned Aaron Burr already. Others include the publisher Frank Nelson Doubleday, Edith Roosevelt, and what surprising figure, the author of The Gift of the Magi. Oh, Henry. Oh, Henry. Oh, Henry, <laughs> oh, Henry indeed. You are correct. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he, he, had a, he had a lot of notable descendants. Interesting. Oh, Henry was born in 1862. So I don't know how many generations down we are now. That is really interesting. I always assumed O'Henry was Irish. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, just, I, I never mm-hmm. knew anything about O'Henry. Born, born William Sidney Porter. Okay. In Greensboro, huh. North Carolina. I guess that's the next deep dive, right? Why, why did he adopt the name O'Henry? I don't know. We don't, like, we, we don't have time for another dive. <laughs> All right. No, we don't. But hey, 100 points. Congratulations. Yes, nailed it. Very nice work. Thank, um, thank you for a very enjoyable dive. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. And hey, while we're, while we're spreading the gratitude around, thank you listeners for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have time to do that. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are Jeopardy fans, let them know about us. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. That's right. And we will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.